0: If I were to ask you, where do you start the Christmas story? Where would you start? Do you start with angels appearing to shepherds in the sky on a hillside outside ancient Bethlehem? Would you start with Joseph and Mary trying to find a place to spend the night and being turned away at the inn? Would you start with an angel appearing to a teenage girl? Where would you start? I want to look at a lesser known story this morning. When it came time for God to write the story of Christmas, this is where he starts the story. And you know this part. An angel shows up to a man who's never had kids, and his name is Zechariah. This is the story before the story. And this story may have more to do with your Christmas than you ever imagined. So I'd like you to open your Bible to a book called Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And while you're turning there, just let me explain something. Why do we do this? It's not because we just want to go back and study old literature. It's not because we love going back and studying history. Most of us would rather study history with a bucket of popcorn and a large Coke and just sit back for a couple hours and let it unfold in front of us on the big screen. If you're a history buff, you are in the minority. But the reason we go back and study history is because the way God dealt with people then is the way God deals with us now. God hasn't changed and he invites us to be a part of his story this story that he's been telling for centuries, for generations and generations. And secondly, we go back and we study uh, these stories to ask God, if this is the way people co- cooperated with you then, what does that look like for me today? How can we play a part? How can we be involved in this script? So we're going to read from Luke chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 5. Here we go. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Verse 7. But, don't you love how this story starts? Two people doing the right thing, spent their whole lives doing the right things. They seemed to be loving God. But, and I love the honesty of the Bible when it comes to the Christmas story. The Bible's version of the Christmas story is why I tend to have a dislike for our neat, cutesy, cleaned up and biblically inaccurate nativity scenes and Christmas carols and church pageants. The Bible's telling of the story is honest. Zechariah and Elizabeth had spent their whole lives loving God and obeying God and doing the right things, but how many of you can identify with this? I wonder how many of you are telling the same story. You've been there or you're there right now. We've been coming to church for years, we've prayed about this for a long time, we've tried to be consistent, we've tried to do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons, but here's where we are financially, here's where our relationship is today, here's where the kids are, here's where our health is, here's where my career is. I mean, you've been loving God and living for God for a long time, but you fill in the blank. So when the New Testament opens, God says, let me tell you about two people, they love me, they're doing the right thing, but... They were hoping the story would turn out different. They were hoping the script would be different. And they're praying to God, let this year be different than the year we just finished. Let 2016 be different than 2015. Please, God. And God says, this is where I start the Christmas story. And my hunch is, if this is where he started 2,000 years ago, this just might be where he starts with us. Verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Sorry, Zechariah, we need the readers to know that you're old. Sorry, Elizabeth, we need to write right here that you're very old. It's, just not, it's not just that you're old and that you don't have kids. You're very old. And even though the Bible doesn't say how old they are, and old, of course, is relative. A man's life expectancy in first century Palestine was a lot lower than ours is today. But I think Luke makes his point. Zechariah and Elizabeth were way beyond childbearing years. They're near the end of a story. They aren't about to start a new story. But God says, no, this is the story before the story. This is the story before the manger scene. This is the story before the angels and the shepherds. This is a story way before the wise men. There are two people here and God says, I'm about to show up. And I always wonder why. You know why them? Why now? Why why do some people seem to play a bigger role in the story of God? Why does God seem to choose some people for the big roles in his story? And why among those people does God that God seems to choose? Why does there appear to appear to be this unfairness? Because so many of them were loving God, walking with God, just doing one right thing and the next right thing and the next right thing. But when you look at their lives, there's always something that just seems unfair. There's a part of their story that just doesn't seem to add up and it just doesn't seem fair. Why does God seem to take someone through something really unfair, certainly undeserved, and then just when it seems like he's forgotten or he's not going to do anything at the very last minute, God shows up? What's the deal with that? Part of the problem is the way that I evaluate things. I tend to judge how God works by blessing, by, by life getting better. But, but sometimes God is saying, your greatest usefulness is going to be in dark times. And I'm going to shine brightest in your life during the dark times. And I've allowed the heartache and the pain because I'm going to use the heartache and the pain. And I'm going to use you. And I'm going to get the glory. Then I think we need to put ourselves in a position to be used. And the Bible doesn't leave us hanging on this one. The scripture talks about this and it talks a lot about this. So first of all, I just want to say that God's story always starts with obedience. God's story always starts with obedience. Some of us are waiting for God to move in our lives. We're waiting for God to start a new story. We're waiting for God to start a new chapter. I mean, I wonder how many of us would say, man, I need a new script. I, at the very least, I need this act to end. Let's get to act two, at least. You know, Let's turn the corner. Let's get started on the next chapter. And if God would offer me a completely new role in a completely different script, I would take it right now. Have you ever found yourself at a standstill? At a standstill in a relationship In a job, in an area of ministry or service, in a friendship, uh, financially, you know, at a standstill in your spiritual growth, and you're just standing still, waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to steer you in a new direction. You ever been there? But we do this. We tend to sit still and to come to a standstill, and we aren't moving at all, and we're just waiting for God to steer us in a new direction. And it's kind of like this you know, it's a whole lot easier to steer a moving car than a parked car. I know that sounds dumb. How in the world do you steer a parked car and why? But think about it. When your car is sitting still in the driveway and you turn the steering wheel back and forth, your front wheels just turn left and right and they just dig up the gravel and they leave a mark in your driveway, but they don't go anywhere. But if you can just get the car moving, even just a little bit, It's a whole lot easier to steer and to change the car's direction. And some of you, some of you are just sitting still waiting for God to steer you, but you're not even moving. And when you start stepping out in obedience and you start doing the things you know you're supposed to do and you start walking with God, and the moment you put yourself in motion is the moment that God says, Okay, now I've got you. Now I see your trust. Now I see your obedience. Now I see you're committed to this thing. I'm going to work in you. I'm going to work through you. Let's take a turn here. Let's get this thing on a new course. Let's go. I tell you what, we tend to put the car in park, set the brake. Even turn the engine off and sit there with our arms crossed and we wonder why God isn't doing anything. So we find Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse six. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And God says, That's where I start. And we're like, whoa, 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 but 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 these people are at the end of their story. And God's, God's like, Well, that's okay, whatever, that, that's where I start. But these people don't have much to offer. And God goes, goes but that, that's where I start. I'm finding two people who are simply walking in obedience. This is where we sometimes get into these conversations. You know, it's like, well, Todd, I think I'm doing what's right. I think I'm being obedient. But here's the thing. You don't have to think. You can know if you're being obedient. Part two, or point two, I should say, obedience is doing what is right in God's eyes, not ours. Obedience is doing what is right in God's eyes, not ours. We have such a weak, watered-down Western view of Christianity where we give a nod to God and we know God's there, but in reality, in reality, when it comes to the everyday, we live our lives according to what we think good is, according to what we think morality is, according to what we think godliness is, according to what we think Jesus would do. But let me just challenge you. It's not up to us to decide what obedience is. He says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God. That is living right in the sight of God, not in their own eyes, in the sight of God. And you're like, well, what's the big, what's the difference? What's the big deal? Let me tell you what the difference is. You know what Zechariah should have done? And please don't start writing your email to me. Hear me out on this one. Do you know what Zechariah should have done? And I'm not saying the Bible says he should have done this. I'm not saying God would have approved, but you know what would have been socially acceptable for Zechariah to do? He should have divorced Elizabeth a long time ago. The Bible says in Luke 1 that the problem wasn't with Zechariah, the problem was with Elizabeth. It says she could not conceive. And in the first century in that culture according to their customs, Zechariah had every right to divorce Elizabeth in a sense, in a sense it was like the responsible thing to do because it was your children, more specifically it was your sons who would care for you in your old age. And according to what was acceptable socially, you know, if she can't give you a son, you should divorce her. Oh, or here's a nice alternative that they built in: that if you can't bear, if she can't bear you a son, and you want to keep her around because uh, you're a nice guy, I, he would have been allowed to take another much younger wife. And I guarantee you, he and his friends have had this conversation a thousand times. I can guarantee you, his friends have said, "Look, Zachariah, I know I've brought this up before like a hundred times over the last twenty years, but you really need to think about having kids." I guarantee you even. Even his Jewish God-fearing friends have said to him, come on, you have every right. No one's going to think anything of it. You deserve to be happy. I love it, I love it when people talk with me and they say, well, I've been talking with my Christian friends and even they think, and, and even my Christian parents think. Just, just stop right there because your Christian friends and your Christian parents are not the word of God. They may, they may want you to be happy so much that they won't speak the truth to you. They may want your happiness so much that they will, they will let go of obedience and holiness. And we live in a culture and we spend a lot of time in our Christian subculture that pursues happiness far more than we pursue holiness. In Luke 1, God says to the writer, I want you to write this down. They were doing what was right in my sight. And we spend a lot of our lives going, I love God, and I love the Bible, and I love my church. But morality, I mean, I'm going to pick and choose some stuff from the Bible to craft my own moral standards. And and I'm just going to pick and choose there. And relationships, I'm going to do relationships according to a little bit of what the Bible says and a little bit of what my friends and my family say. And and finances, I mean, come on, the Bible's so old. that was a completely different economy. Let me tell you, obedience is black and white. There's no need to hope that you're being obedient. Obedience is spelled out for us in God's word. It isn't some mystical, mysterious thing. God says, read my word, know my word, get some understanding, get in tune with my Holy Spirit and live in obedience. Obedience is where he starts the story before the story of Christmas. Some of you are hoping for a new story. Some of you are hoping for a new script, for a new chapter, for the curtain to come down on this act, maybe around this Christmas season for the curtain to rise on a brand new act. I'm telling you, God is waiting for new players in the script. He's looking for people who will just step out in obedience and start moving and just do what's right in his his eyes, not in our own eyes. When you act in obedience, I promise you, you will find yourself in God's story. And I'm convinced the main reason so many of us don't hear from God and the main reason so many of us don't see God show up in our situation and the main reason so many of us don't find ourselves playing a role in God's story is because we say we love God. We come to church, we sing the songs, but we're doing what's right in our own eyes. Oh, by the way, back to the story. God's about to pick another couple, another couple who's never had children. They don't even have a sexual relationship. And her name is Mary. So much has been said about why God picks Mary. And I think one of the main reasons he picks this couple is because he knew Joseph was the kind of man who wasn't going to do what was socially acceptable. He wasn't going to cave in to family pressures. I mean, you think Zechariah has a get-out-of-jail-free card in that culture where Elizabeth, who can't give him kids, you know? How about Joseph? I mean, you're engaged, and your teenage fiancé shows up pregnant. No one bats an eye when you call off the wedding and walk away from that one. But he chooses to stay with her, to go through with the wedding, and all you have, all you, all you really have to go... Go by as an angel talking to you in a dream, and you're telling people it's from God based on that. There has been uh, it's, this is just there is there's been so much made of Mary being a saint and all that, and I get that. But Joseph, I mean, I think God realized that this was the kind of man who would obey Him, who would stay with God's plan, He would stand by Mary, He wouldn't give in to societal and family pressures. He knew that Joseph would pursue holiness over his own happiness. Back to our story, Luke one verse eight. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. The devout Jewish people know where we are in the story, but the rest of us are like, I'm not quite sure what just happened in this story. So here's what's going on. At this time, in this Jewish culture, there were 20,000 priests. Every male descendant of Aaron is considered a priest. It's been 1,400 years since I moved into the promised land. There are now 20,000 priests, 20,000 priests and one temple. It was tough to get an opportunity to serve in the temple. So what they did is several years before this, they divided themselves into divisions. A division could be 700 to 1,200 priests So about twice a year for a week, your division got to come to Jerusalem to work in the temple. And you had to share the duties in the temple with 700 to 1,200 other guys. So what could, I mean, what could these many people even do? I mean, uh, granted, sacrificial worship was very messy, so there was a lot of cleaning to do. And that's really what most of them ended up doing. When it came time, though, to burn incense in the holy place, they picked one name kind of out of a hat. Verse 8 says, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So he's chosen, randomly. And he has to walk through the court of the Gentiles and he has to walk through the court of women and he has to walk through the court of the Jews and he walks up the stairs into the temple itself and he will disappear inside those doors and he'll go where very few men in history have ever gone and he'll have a gold bowl in his hand. It's filled with coals from the morning sacrifice and he'll have incense with him. And once he disappears from the sight of the people, watching him go into the holy place, he will stand in that little space, about 18 inches square, next to the altar of incense, and he'll remove the ashes from the previous sacrifice, and he'll pour the coals onto the altar, and then he'll pour the incense onto the coals, and he will gently blow on the coals, and the incense will rise, and that incense is a picture of our prayers rising to God. And in front of Zechariah now is a curtain, and it separates him from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant used to be kept. At the time of Zechariah, the ark had been missing for about 600 years. History's still not sure. Did the Babylonians take it? Did, the, did some priests hide it to protect it? Did Indiana Jones actually find it? Who, nobody knows. But at the time of Zechariah, the ark is gone. This little three-foot-by-two-foot box that represented the presence of God, it's gone. But it's still considered the holiest place in the practice of Judaism. Oral tradition says that when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year, they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he got in there and he wasn't holy. And just in case God might strike him dead, they would put they could then grab the rope and pull him out from under the curtain because no one would ever dare enter the Holy of Holies. Zechariah is not a high priest. He's not going into the Holy of Holies. But he is going into the holy place. This is his big day. He's going into the holy place to light the altar of incense. It's a once-in-a-lifetime uh, deal for a Jewish priest. His heart is racing, beads of sweat on his forehead, and he starts to pray. And whatever preparation he made for that moment, I don't think it, be, it even began to prepare him for what's about to happen. Verse 10. When the time for the burning of incense came and all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. (laughs) So Zechariah finally gets his moment, and he's in the holy place, and he's lighting the altar of incense, and he's offering a prayer, listen, on behalf of the nation of Israel, and he senses a presence. And he looks up, and there's an angel standing there, And he tells him, your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. And his name is going to be John. Think about this. I don't think Zechariah went into the holy place to pray for a son. Oh, I think they prayed for a son for years, for decades. But I think as they moved from being old to being very old, they had given up on that prayer. Zechariah was a devout and righteous man. I don't think he would use this opportunity, a one in 20,000 opportunity, to come into the holy place and light the incense that represented the prayers of a nation and be so brazen and self-absorbed as to pray for a son. When a priest prayed at the altar of incense, when a priest prayed with the nation waiting outside, at the end of the prayer, he would walk back out to the temple steps (coughs) and he would shout to the people, and the people would echo back. It's the same thing every time. And then they would leave, knowing that God has just heard the prayers of the nation. And in that moment, the priest prays for two things. He prays for the salvation of Israel, and he prays for the promised Messiah to come quickly. So Zechariah is in there praying for the salvation of Israel and for the Messiah to come quickly. And an angel says, your prayer has been answered. Elizabeth will have a son. And what Zechariah didn't know and couldn't get his mind around is that this boy would set into motion the answer to both of his prayers the salvation of israel has come and the messiah is on his way verse 16 he'll bring back many of the people of israel to the lord their god he will go on before the lord in the spirit and power of elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the lord don't move on too quickly where else have we heard these words? To turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Where have we heard this before? Check this out. If you go to Malachi, which is just a few pages to the left, okay? It's the last book in the Old Testament, just three books to the left of where we are right now in the book of Luke. If you go to Malachi chapter four, this is the last chapter, of the last book of the Old Testament. Basically, the message of Malachi is the Lord saying, I'm tired. I'm tired of my people being religious. I'm tired of my people living their lives, coming to church, being religious, and then going back to their lives. I hate that kind of religion. Malachi, tell the people, this isn't something where you show up one day a week for a couple of hours. This is your whole life. I'm done with this. And that was the end of the message. And for 400 years, beginning with Malachi, the people of Israel wouldn't hear the voice of God. For 400 years. For 400 years, the people of God won't hear from God. No new revelation, no truth through the prophets, nothing. The very last words given to Israel before these years of silence. Malachi 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or she will come and strike the land with total destruction in silence for 400 years the next time anyone on earth hears from god it's an old very old priest in the holy place in the temple in jerusalem And an angel named Gabriel shows up and says, your prayers have been heard. And if you're thinking, you know, but wait, Matthew and Mark come before Luke. How can this be the next word from God? Mark doesn't include any of this story. Matthew picks up with the story of Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus. So chronologically, Luke's story comes first. The first message we have after 400 years of silence is an angel, a messenger from God, saying, Zechariah, your boy will turn the hearts of parents to their children. So in light of this prophecy, I just wrote this point this way, that Christmas has to change who we are at home. I'm not talking about who we are at church. We all know the church versions of each other. I'm talking about who we are at home. The very first words from God when he starts his new work in the New Testament is simply, my heart's desire... It's for fathers to love their children, for mothers to love their children, for children to love their parents. Because, because God knows that the power of homes where every member of our family loves all the other members of the family. He knows that the homes are strong, the community will be strong. The homes are strong, the churches will be strong. And if the homes are strong, the nation will be strong. And not only does God know that, not only do we know that, but our enemy knows that. The enemy of our souls, Satan, knows this is true. It's why our families are under attack. It's why our marriages are under attack. It's the last thing God says to the people in the Old Testament. And it's the first thing he says after 400 years of silence. And he chooses to communicate it to Zechariah at the biggest moment, and the biggest day of a long life of service to God. The promise of the Messiah has got to change how we do marriage. It's got to change how we do kids. It's got to change how we do family. This has got to impact how we answer the question, how am I loving the people closest to me? It's got to have impact, not just on Sundays, but in our every day. Man, we are coming into a season where some of you can't wait to have family come visit or to go visit with family. And some of you can't wait to say goodbye to family that's going to come visit. I know it's true. We laugh about it because it's kind of funny, but it's mostly true and sad. You're looking forward to them coming, but you're looking forward to them leaving more. It's a time of year that we are under family stress and tension like no other time of the year. Right? Don't look at anybody else. But for some of you, it's a time of year where you have to spend time with people who have caused some of the greatest hurt and the greatest pain in your life. You want to put yourself in the Christmas story? You want to put your car in motion in obedience? You go and you make this experience that we do on Sunday, this faith that we hold on to, this promise of a Messiah who's going to change everything, you take that truth, you make it the real deal at home. You want to be close to the heart of God, you engage at home. Satan understands this. He understands where the battle is. Sometimes I'm not sure we really get it. The angel says, Zechariah, your son, he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents back to their kids, the hearts of kids back to their parents. And Zechariah, starting in your house, verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, he says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is, and I think he hesitated, well along in years. He's a smart guy. He's trying to be nice, right? And he's standing in the hole. Think about that. He's a priest who served God faithfully his whole life. And he's an old man. He's standing in the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem with an angel. And, and with an angel. An angel who had a name. And he's so caught up in his own situation. He's not sure God is going to show up in his life. So he's so caught up in what he knows about his life that he can't see how God has written the script to tell a greater story. I think this is a message to everyone who's sitting here this morning. Because we're kind of like, ah, nice story, you know, good for them, yay. What's that have to do with my life? How's God going to do anything in my life? No angels are appearing to me. Todd, you obviously don't understand my situation. Clearly you don't understand the issues in my relationships. You obviously don't understand the complexities of my marriage and my family and money and my job and my ex. And you don't understand the hurt that comes with this time of year. You don't understand all the reminders of what could have (coughs) been. Maybe not. But here's my last point. Faith is trusting God's word, not our circumstances. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, great story. I love that story. Good for them. But that's for Bible people. That's for people on the flannel graph in Sunday school. That's not me. That's for super Christian people. Not me. That's for people who have it all together. Not me. But here's how God works with people. The most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of situations, that's who he delights in. That's what shows him to be God. When God uses awesome people, we tend to go, look at that, they're awesome people. When God uses broken, simple, sinful, faithful people, we go, look at that, isn't God awesome? Verse 19. Zechariah just asked, how do I know this is true? I don't, I'm not really sure. I mean, I am standing in the temple and I'm a priest and you're an angel and you just talk to me and I haven't heard. We haven't heard from God in 400 years, but I'm not so sure. This could, you know, you, how'd you get in here anyway? Verse 19. <laughs> he says, I am Gabriel. <laughs> Period. That should be enough. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Good news. Don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news. At the end of this chapter, Gabriel's going to deliver good news to Mary. In the next chapter, some angels are going to bring some good news to some shepherds. A little later, some wise men are going to receive some good news. But Zechariah got it first. The good news starts here in the Christmas story. Verse 20. And now, Zechariah, you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Like, Whoa, that's harsh. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And I was like, what could be taking him so long? This dude is really praying the long prayer today. He's got the full, it's the longest prayer ever. Maybe he died. We don't have a rope. <laughs> verse 22. When he came out, he could not speak to them. Remember, traditionally, they would come out and he would greet the people and the people would respond. He came out and he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. That's another story. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So Zechariah comes out of the temple and because he's doubted, he's, he's still part of the plan. Okay? But he can't speak about it. He's mute. This is supposed to be his moment. He's supposed to come out of the temple, out of the Holy of Holies, having prayed on behalf of the nation, having lit the altar of incense, and come out and promise the people that God has heard our prayer. It was his moment. And he couldn't speak. I'm not sure they knew how to leave because that's kind of how it worked. The priest would come out, would call out to the people, they would respond, and then they would leave. So I think it was kind of this awkward what happens now. It was like, comes out, he's got nothing. It's like he starts making motions and gestures like a massive game of charades. I guess the tradition has changed now. We're just going to play charades, and then we go home. And finally, the people somehow get the message. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now we know the story before the story. There are a couple of responses to this story. Stories are great. Um, but, and they often keep our attention, but we ought to have an, a response or a couple responses. Number one, we have to accept how God sees us, not how we see ourselves. We have to accept how God sees us, not how we see ourselves. Because most of us have succumbed to the lies of the accuser, the enemy of our souls. When he tells us you're not worth it, you've already blown it. Look what you've done. Look at your life. You're not the kind of person God uses. If people at church ever found out the truth about you, and we start listening to the lies of Satan. And yet, countless times in the Bible, God chooses people that you'd never expect. Gideon saw himself as the least of the least in the tribe, and God's like, No, you're a mighty warrior. God picks David, the youngest brother, the runt, and he was so insignificant that even his own father didn't bother even calling him into the house, and the prophet came to anoint a new king. A woman named Rahab who saw herself as a prostitute because she was, and her whole town knew it. And God said, that's the lineage of my son. She'll be part of the Christmas story. And a woman named Esther, she just saw herself as another pretty face and people around her never saw what was inside until God said, you'll be the person who saves the Jewish race and preserves the promise of the Messiah. The Bible is a history of God saying, don't believe what Satan says about you. Don't believe what you think about yourself. I'm a God who delights in using the weak and and the foolish things. That's the Christmas story. The second response is this, is to be in God's story, we have to follow his script. So if you want to be in the story, he's already given us the script. It's called obedience. We have to know what he says in his word in order to obey it. So to understand how God sees you, regardless of what you've done or where you've been, where you've come from, God has adopted you. He's made you his own. And God says, that's how I see you. When you follow his script and you get rid of the stuff that says, well, here's what I... Here's what I think I should do, and here's how I define obedience in this situation, and here's what makes sense to me. When you get to the place where you ditch that, and you embrace what the Word of God says and do it, God will begin to accomplish His story in you. My challenge to you is this. This Christmas season, 2015, let's make it a memorable and meaningful Christmas by being part of the story God is telling. Let's be a part of it. Most weeks I like to find a song to Kind of wrap up my my teaching time and find something that is thematic and that really ties in, and I uh, I I'm not a fan of Christmas music. Sorry, um, no, it's okay when other people are singing it for the most part, um, but I, I I I I couldn't find a song that talked about the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. <laughs> And God showing up through an angel for the first time in 400 years and telling a guy this great news and then making him mute for six months. I, I couldn't find a song about that. So, thought, what, what is the message I'm trying to say right now? So, the message I went looking for in a song was let, let's be part of the story God is telling. Let's offer our lives up. Let's surrender our lives in obedience. That's what characterized Zechariah and Elizabeth. That they were living lives of loving God and living in obedience living in righteousness in his sight so let's do that let's offer our lives what let's quit holding back on god let's offer him everything our marriages our family our relationships with our kids our job our finances our dreams let's offer him our view of ourselves and let's see what god does And he takes some broken, sinful, faithful people and injects them into his story. So, anyway, I didn't have to go too far to find the song. So, uh, listen to this. Let this be true of our lives.